production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmeyer, the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. Today we're going to be discussing the abortion bill that was just signed into law by Governor Mike Pence. We have uh, two guests with us here in the studio, and one is joining us by phone. And by phone, we're going to be talking with Brandon Smith, the Statehouse reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. And in the studio with us are Kurt Smith from the Indiana Family Institute and Abby Hunt, who's the Executive Director of the Healthcare Education and Training Incorporated. If you have questions or comments, you can join the discussion by calling 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you could follow us on Twitter at noon edition. And I should tell you that Kurt Smith is president of the Indiana Family Institute. So thank you both for being here. And Brandon, thanks for joining us by phone. We appreciate it, always. Um, so I want to turn it over to Brandon uh, quickly because he followed this in the uh, in the state house, the bill going through uh, the decision of the governor to sign it, and uh, just wanted to, for you to give us some background. Sure. Well, there are actually two bills uh, dealing with abortion issues that moved significantly through the session. Uh, one started in the House, one started in the Senate. The one that started in the House was a bill that the the, the piece that got the most focus was it would um, bar any organization in the state, or anyone in the state from disposing of aborted fetal remains as medical waste. It was something that a lot of lawmakers said they didn't even realize wasn't already illegal, and it's about, they, they say it's about, the proponents say it's about, you know, uh, the dignity of that life, disposing it of either uh, through burial or cremation. There were also some pieces in there that had to deal with um, informed consent language, how soon ahead of time you have to do that. Uh, what you have to sign, that sort of thing. It also had to say when you're, uh, uh, a woman is discussing these things with a, with a doctor, it has to be in a private room. It can't be, you know, in a group setting kind of thing. So that was the bill in the House that came out of the House. The bill in the Senate had to do with what's gotten a lot more attention and, and controversy um, lately, which is it banned abortions performed solely because of the fetus's sex, race or um, potential disability, so things like Down syndrome or it really says any disability that not necessarily immediately diagnosed, but again, the potential for that diagnosis, because we can't always know when a, when a fetus is in the womb what the disability absolutely will be or will not be. That bill, the Senate bill, couldn't get a hearing in the House. The chairman of the House Public Policy Committee decided not to hear the bill. And so the Senate added all of that language into the House abortion bill when it came over. And so, the, so that total package and the Senate, the Senate original Senate bill never really got a public hearing in the House. So that led to objections by even some Republican lawmakers about sort of the process issue of it all, is this didn't follow the process, we didn't do this the right way. There was also objections by uh, obviously mostly Democrats, but some Republicans as well, about the core issue in that Senate bill, which is the idea of banning these abortions because of the fetus's potential disability. Okay, so um, were you so then Governor Governor Pence, of course, had to sign the bill, and on the last day, the Thursday that he could sign, you know, the last day he could sign all bills. This was one of the very last bills that he signed. Do you think there was ever any question of whether he would sign it or not? Uh, we didn't honestly think so, and when I say we, I mean those of us here at the State House and the State House Press Corps. We were surprised that it took him as long as it did to sign it. Um, when asked about it beforehand, he never goes into too much detail about what he's thinking on any bill, for the most part, uh, leading up to his signing it. But on this one, you know, he said, "I'm going to carefully weigh uh, what I'm hearing, but I come at this from a governor who has always been an advocate for anti-abortion bills." So, you know, talking about. He's been pro-life his whole career, and that's been true. 
Um, so we were all a little surprised that it that he did wait until the last minute. We figured that was going to be a relatively easy decision for him to make. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon, I know you talked to him right after the signing. Did he indicate what did sway him to, or you know, what what ultimately led him to his decision to sign it? Um, mostly what he had already said, which was um, he believed that. Uh, the bill uh, was about advancing uh, advancing the, the the dignity of all life in regards to the the burial cremation language, and then in regards to the uh, the, the selective abortion ban, um, he just said that he you know it was about protecting Hoosiers with disabilities. All right, we have Kurt Smith here with us. Kurt's president of the Indiana Family Institute. I know you have been a supporter of of Governor Pence, and I'm sure that it didn't surprise you that the governor would sign this bill. Uh, Not at all. And we didn't see the fact that he waited to the last day as a delay. There's, you know, hundreds of bills and lots of moving parts and staff has different assignments and things. So uh, we we never doubted that that he would sign the Mm -hmm. bill, though, if he didn't tell me that. But uh, we think it's great legislation as a pro-life organization. We're always pleased to see Indiana be as as pro-life as the, the federal courts will allow. And this uh, certainly puts us in, in that place, along with North Dakota, as you mentioned, in the open, Bob. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some of the, you know, some uh, a lot of the arguments have been arguments that I'm sure you've heard before that this sure. this puts, uh, you know, this is a a bill that really takes a lot of uh, healthcare decisions away from the the mother, the doctor. Um, you know, how do you respond to that? Uh, we don't see it that way. We think it's more a, a informed choice. You know, the courts have said we have this choice uh, under the U.S. Constitution. I don't see that anywhere, but that's their their call. And so we see it as giving people uh, the full information and also beginning to say some of these more egregious examples of abortion are not appropriate public policy. And in a pro-life state with a generally conservative governor and a generally conservative legislature, it's appropriate for the people's will to to be expressed in that way. And so we don't see it as a, uh, a limitation of, of the mother's right, but rather as a as an expression of the child's uh, potential. And uh, that's why we take great heart from this legislation. Okay. Well, Abby Hunt is from the Healthcare Education and Training Incorporated. And uh, Abby, you don't take uh, positions necessarily on abortion, do you? No. Okay. So can you explain what what your uh, organization does and what your... So healthcare education and training, we're here in Indianapolis and in Wisconsin as well, and we serve the Great Lakes states. Um, Our mission is all around improving reproductive and sexual health in the region. Um, And we do a lot of our work at the provider level, so making sure that women and families have access to medically accurate, evidence-based healthcare to help them make decisions around the reproductive health. And so what really stuck out for us um, with this bill particularly are two things. The first is that... um, for us, surprisingly, we have a different perspective in that. Um, in that, I'm um, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> in that, um, our perspective is that it takes. Um, really takes advantage of women and families when they're in a really vulnerable time, either grieving the loss of a pregnancy or the loss of kind of their expectations around how their pregnancy might turn out, and then is really invasive into the patient-provider um, relationship, um, therefore. Um, we also, it really struck us at this point, too, um, in the larger scope of um, things that have happened in, in our state in the last year or half or, or so that are kind of limiting in terms of how people can improve or make choices around the reproductive health. Um, we had some state-level teen pregnancy prevention money that supported communities to um, provide education around um, sexual health and reproductive health that was cut. Um, There was money sent out of state, millions of dollars sent out of state to another organization to then fund crisis pregnancy centers in um, Indiana that, um, you know, only um, are are not medical providers, only don't provide referrals for contraception or um, comprehensive education. Um, and just some other missed opportunities for funding and bills. So we see it in kind of the big picture of like what's really happening holistically around decision making for women and families in Indiana around reproductive health. Can you talk about just the impact? And both of you can answer this too, but the impact it could have on healthcare providers. I'm sure. Do you want to go first? Sure. We, yeah. uh, um, as I shared at the outset here, uh, you know, I've been unusually involved in the healthcare system in the last couple of years as we went through a family. Uh, cancer battle. And so I've unfortunately, you know, witnessed the signing of thousands of forms and, you know, interacting with insurance companies. And 
I can't imagine that this is any more of an issue than any of the other things that uh, our medical community is already uh, dealing with. We've also had a very significant insertion of the federal government into the healthcare system, which brings that its own complexities. And you can argue if it's good or bad, but it definitely is different. It's changed medicine and will change it even more in the coming years. So I don't think elevating a pro-life ethic in that whole milieu of things that doctors and other healthcare providers deal with is, is you know, out of reason, is unreasonable or is out of step with uh, the expectations uh, of our uh, citizenry. I see it a little differently. Um, so, okay. <laughs> um, the way that I um, see it, and I've, I've been telling a story um, that kind of um, gives maybe some insight into how this could look for women. So for me, um, our family, I had a miscarriage in the last part of the first trimester recently, and it was the same time that all this was going through the legislature. So in a time where we were, our family was grieving um, how this may have played out, and so I'll give you a few more details. How this may have played out against this bill is, you know, we went in, I'm in my late 30s, so we went in to do um, some genetic testing to just see what we, we hadn't made any decisions for our family about what we would or wouldn't do, and that wouldn't be anybody else's business anyway. Um, so we went in to see, you know, to do the, the blood draw and see what potentially may happen. And that was at the end of the first trimester. And so before we were, were going to do that test, and we found out about the miscarriage. So we didn't do the test. But we did do some follow-up genetic testing, and it came back that um, that we would have been experiencing one of the things that would have been on this list, um, long list in the bill, that could have been considered a serious medical issue. Um, so put that story in the backdrop and think about then what I would have done then is I would have left my provider, because my provider wouldn't provide, um, if, if we had decided that for our family the right decision was to not continue the pregnancy based on that diagnosis, then we would have gone to another provider where we could have had more counseling around that or um, to help us make that decision. But if we had decided to not continue the pregnancy, I would have had to gone in and my husband family and lied to my provider, essentially, um, because if they um, knew about this or suspected it even, which that's a lot of ways to think about that, suspected it even, then they wouldn't have been able to provide that option had we chosen that. Um, so that's great um, for us, but we have also access and opportunities to go to another state to look for healthcare that where we can be open and honest with our provider. But a lot of families don't have that opportunity, so we feel like it's just very invasive um, in that decision-making process. If that story helps provide a backdrop, mm -hmm. yeah. And I also want to ask about the other element <laughs> of this bill: the the burial element, uh -huh. the mm -hmm. disposal element. So. So, Abby, from your perspective, I mean, you you were going through this mm -hmm. traumatic time. You know, how would that have affected you? Um, I don't know. I just know that I wouldn't want. Um, I personally wouldn't have wanted the state um, to be a part of that decision-making process. Mm -hmm. My understanding of what the legislation does in that regard, Bob, is previously there was no uniform standard. A hospital might allow a woman to have the. Um, uh, the miscarriage mm -hmm. uh, uh, child or not just depends on the individual policies and now we have a uniform state standard the mother father you know if the family wishes so they can take the remains and do with it as they wish um, and then you know separate but somewhat related is also we're going to have uh, a humane and decent uh, uh, handling of any uh, of any human um, uh, miscarriages or, or abortions. And there were some problems up in Indianapolis with a company bringing things in from out of state and they weren't handling just landfilling um, medical waste that included uh, these kinds of things. So prior to this bill, Abby may or may not have been able to do what she wanted to do after the miscarriage. Um, I don't know what your hospital's policy was, but that is now uniform across the state and all all folks would have access to that. Okay. We're talking today uh, about Indiana's abortion law that just it will be changing. And it, the, the bill that passed the, the uh, Indiana General Assembly was signed into law by Governor Mike Pence. So we're talking with Kurt Smith from the Indiana Family Institute, Abby Hunt from Healthcare Education and Training Incorporated, and Brandon Smith, the Statehouse reporter for Indiana Public Media. Brandon, I was hoping that perhaps you could answer when Abby was talking about, you know, how the doctors would have these conversations. It seems like a lot of discretion is left 
to the doctor. So I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to how, how the law would then be enforced. Well, the, the specific language of the bill says that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't penalize the woman, the mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the penalty is only on the, on the provider, so the doctor or whomever, the clinic. Um, and it says, the, the specific language of the bill says that a person may not intentionally perform or attempt to perform an abortion if the person knows that the pregnant woman is seeking the abortion solely because the fetus has been diagnosed with any other disability or with Down syndrome or any other uh, disability or has a potential diagnosis of Down syndrome or any other disability. And they, uh, on the form, they have to, that that the clinic, uh, that the provider now submits to the state, one of the things they'll have to include is whether the fetus had a diagnosis of Down syndrome or a potential diagnosis of Down syndrome or any other disability. But this leads to a situation, and, and, and a criticism of the bill has been that, will it, is it basically forcing women to lie to their doctors? Or in the case of the doctor, are they going to say to the woman, are you getting this solely because of the Down syndrome diagnosis, or are you getting this solely because of another disability diagnosis? Um, It doesn't really say what has to happen there. They have to provide them with information. but So it, it becomes an issue of, if, the, if a provider reports to the state that they performed an abortion and one of the pieces of information is that the fetus had been diagnosed with, say, another disability, uh, the state could then theoretically go to the mother and say, is this the only reason you got this abortion? And if she says yes, then the doctor would mm-hmm. be liable. But I don't know how often that would actually happen in reality. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like a sort of situation where the mother might have to go back and, and go to the state and say, or, or you know, the, the authorities and say, listen, this happened, this is why I did it, they didn't stop me, or something like that. I, the, the, the enforcement part of this is a little unclear. But presumably then that would, that would change the way doctors would be required to ask these questions? So it's... I mean, theoretically, yeah, if you wanted to avoid prosecution... Yeah, I think um, they have to, they're going to have to get fuller counsel. It seems like the thing you'd have to do is, yeah. Yeah, they're going to have to give fuller counsel and make sure that there's there's a lot going on. But we've, um, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence in our doctors that they'll give women and, and others involved in these decisions the, the full range of options and a full understanding of things. And uh, I, I put a lot of stock in them. And as Abby says and knows better than I do, this is a difficult time. These are emotional decisions. And I think for a doctor to say, wait a minute, is that the only reason, you know, do you know Down syndrome kids live wonderful, beautiful lives? Do you know there are parents lined up to adopt them? You know, I think that's the kind of conversation that our policymakers are hoping to, to spark. Our phone numbers uh, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I want to ask because it seems like – so what we have now is a law in which basically a woman has a right to go to her health care provider and to arrange uh, to have an abortion if she doesn't know – if she doesn't have knowledge about um, the fetus. That is, uh, she doesn't know if there's a disability, doesn't know the gender, doesn't know the race. But if she does have that knowledge, then she doesn't have the right to have an abortion. Uh, my understanding is, and, and Brandon can uh, serve as our legal counsel here, but uh, <laughs> if the woman has that knowledge, she can't act on it solely for that reason. So the way I think about it is it ends discrimination. It ends discrimination against children. Some would call them fetuses, but I call them children, babies that have Down syndrome or other disabilities, or they want a boy and it's a girl, or they want a girl and it's a boy, or it's... Uh, a biracial baby and they don't want to deal with that gender race so it ends discrimination in in that setting now i recognize others don't see it that way but to me that's that's the intent and that's what the goal of the bill is well go ahead and she can act on it she just can't tell the truth about it so she can act on it she can go and still you know seek services and seek counseling around all her options and she can make a decision about it but she can't then go to her provider and say this is why 
but you don't have to give a reason. Right. I want an abortion, period. Mm-hmm. We got a question that I think feeds into what you're saying, Kurtz. Maybe you can respond here. Uh-huh. The person is asking, does abortion for gender race abnormality encourage discrimination for those who are a different gender, race, or already disabled? Is it Does it encourage it? I don't think so. I may, Maybe I'm not understanding the question, but I don't see how it would... It, we have legal protections now. So I think it's it's designed by the authors of the bill to help eliminate that. Okay, we have some callers uh, who are interested in getting on the program now. So let's, let's talk to uh, Melinda first. Melinda is from Bloomington. Hello, I'm very glad to have this on the radio. Thank mm-hmm. you for all coming. Sure. My question is, how is this bill... Oh no! Oh no! We, we lost, lost the Melinda. caller. But I think her question was: how, Is this a const- is it constitutional? And I know we've we've had uh, Don Johnson, who's you know a, sure. a legal expert here at the IU, sure uh, Mauer School of Law, who says it's just not uh, not constitutional. Right. Every life bill, abortion bill, choice bill, whatever you want to call them, they're challenged in court immediately. And so you can basically say there's going to be federal review of everything. <clears throat> and um, you know, I think that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution, but still part of our founding documents, part of our founding ethic. I think that life uh, at the heart of the founding of America is also reflected in our Constitution. So I would say yes, but um, the the record in the courts is that uh, they've been very reticent to embrace uh, bills like this. Uh, Brandon, how about the the discussion at the state house while this was going through? Was that constitutionality part of the discussion? Oh, absolutely. And and as you might expect, uh, the folks who were for the bill say, you know, they think it will pass constitutional muster. The folks on the other side say it won't. Uh, but but as Kurt just said, there was an acknowledgement from even the proponents of the bill. Yeah, this is going to get challenged in court. We know this is going to have to go through judicial scrutiny. We hope it survives. And one sign that they know that sort of thing uh, is going to happen is when you read the bill after a lot of these these new languages, uh, like literally after every paragraph, there's a section that says, this section is severable as specified by a part of Indiana Code. What that means is if a court says one particular part of the bill is unconstitutional, it doesn't mean every other part of the bill is, unco- is, is thrown out with it. Uh, when right. you see that repeated a lot in a piece of legislation, that usually is an indicator that the authors of the bill, the proponents of the bill, know it's going to get challenged in court, and they're kind of hedging their bet just a little to make sure everything doesn't get thrown out along with an individual piece. North Dakota has a similar law. Has it has it been challenged? Uh, as far as I know, it has, and I don't think so far in the legal process it has um, withstood judicial scrutiny. Uh, though that is still ongoing as far as I'm aware. And the history, the recent history here in Indiana of, of major abortion bills has not been um, favorable for for the bill's proponents. Uh, back in 2011, there was a major bill that included an effort to defund or to cut off funding to Planned Parenthood. That was knocked down in federal court. Uh, there was another bill that had to do, um, a couple years later, that had to do with uh, new requirements for abortion facilities or clinics that provide abortions, um, kind of expanding what they had to offer in terms of surgical standards and things like that. That was also has been knocked down in federal court so far. So the recent history here has not been successful, but this is not exactly the same issue as those other two things. Could I give two yeah. footnotes that, sure. that uh, maybe some would quibble with, but... Uh, one, the 2011 bill in Indiana, the feature about um, defunding Planned Parenthood was indeed struck down. There were many other elements of that bill that were upheld, and it was a very significant piece of pro-life legislation. It says that under Indiana law, life begins at conception, for example. That's a statement. It's not a, uh, you know, a legislative milestone, but it's an important public policy anchor that, that our you know, statement, our, sta- our state has made. And if memory serves me correctly, the Texas case that's before the U.S. Supreme Court is about the facilities issue. Without Scalia on the court, we all wonder, but I believe the uh, appellate court out of Texas upheld the facilities. And basically the idea there is that if you're doing abortions, you should be held to the same standards as comparable medical procedures. And so you should have uh, hallways that are wide enough for gurneys to get in. And 
cleanliness standards and things like that. And that one, I believe, is in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, and the bias would be to uphold it if it's a 4-4 split. Now, one of the professors from Maurer can call in and say the appellate court reversed the trial court, and but I, I believe that's the standing status of that bill before the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, that's my understanding, too. Okay, we have a couple more callers, but we're going to have to take a short break before we get to them. So you're listening to Noon Edition, and we're talking about abortion and the bill that was just uh, signed by Governor Mike Pence. Uh, You can join us at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. We'll be back after the break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Sarah Whitmire, and we are talking about abortion in Indiana today. Uh, Abby Hunt from the Health from Healthcare Education and Training Incorporated is with us, as is Kurt Smith, president of the Indiana Family Institute. They're both in the studio and joining us by phone is our friend Brandon Smith, State House reporter for Indiana Public Media. If you have questions or comments, Please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So let's go right to the phones. We have Sarah, who's been patient, on the phone. Sarah, go ahead. Hi. Um, There are a lot of things I don't like about this law, but one of them that I truly do not understand although I, I can guess the, the reason that it came about, was the statement that, I forget the gentleman's name, made that the part about disposal of fetal remains after the abortion um, is to respect the dignity of, the, of that human life. For all of us who have uh, used any parts of me on our driver's licenses, and for all of us who have, uh, have, have already willed our bodies to medical education at the Indiana University School of Medicine. I think that is treating our remains with great dignity, and I do not understand why that should not also be possible for the remains of a fetus that was aborted. Kurt Smith? Obviously, it has to do with your perspective on on the issue as a an adult who willingly donates your organs, corneas, other other things to extend life or improve life for others, I, I applaud you. I think that's uh, marvelous. And um, you think I should not be allowed to do that for my children if I had small children? I don't think that. And they died in an automobile accident. I should not be able to do that for my. No, you small can. Children you can, and you should. Themselves? No, you can, and you should. So why is that different? Do you think we should harvest organs from aborted fetuses? I mean, we've just had a national conversation about that. There's a lot of videos out there that show what's going on, and I don't support that, and I don't think a majority of Americans do, and I know from polling data. I'm talking about uh, use for research, use for whatever would be life-saving. Well, I can simplify the conversation and say that... um, you know, you know where I'm coming from, but this bill only deals with fetal remains, so it it doesn't speak to um, harvesting or procuring uh, organs. We've made that decision as a country. It goes back to August of 2001 that we would not engage in um, uh, stem cell research from um, uh, from from babies. So it has to be ad- adult stem cells. There were a couple lines that President Bush allowed to continue. But we we made that decision 15 years ago. 
So this bill only deals with remains and how they go into what would be called the medical waste stream and that they shouldn't go into that stream. And it, and it, it puts them into the category of it, 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 rema- it requires that they be dealt with by, by a funeral homes who, who bury. Correct. Or, can you, can you or, bury or cremate. Your own garden. Bury or cremate. Yes. And could I bury the, the remains in my own yard? Um, I don't know what the laws are there. I don't think so. I'm not even sure you can bury your cat in your yard anymore, given uh, where okay. we are as a country. But I don't, I don't know the answer to that, ma'am. Sarah, let, thank you for, for your questions. I'm going to follow up on one of your questions. So who bears the cost of, of this burial? Exactly. Well, it's just yeah. part of the cost of the medical procedure. I mean, it would be part of, you know, I mean, there are states that are even moving toward anesthesia now. They're requiring anesthesia for the, the again, child. And I know many of the listeners would call it a fetus mm-hmm. or something else. But um, that anesthesia would just be part of the procedure and presumably the the woman would bear it or her insurance company or other providers or other uh, payers. Okay. Your medical insurance will pay for anesthesia, but it will not pay for burial. Okay. All right, Sarah. Hey, thanks a lot for your calls. We appreciate it. Uh, anybody else wants to get on the uh, this program, we have plenty of time. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, one 285 9348 outside the local area. You can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I'm just circling back on this topic of fetal remains one more time here. I'm wondering if other states have similar laws on that one as well in terms of the disposal of fetal remains. Um, I believe they do. I'm not well-versed. The authority on kind of the 50-state lineup is a group called Americans United for Life. I believe their website is aul.org, but it's Americans United for Life, and they have very good all 50-state comparisons of different uh, pro-life and or pro-choice policies. So that'd be a place someone could go to see how neighboring states or all states across the country. But I believe generally we've tried to separate miscarriage and fetal remains from the general medical waste stream. All right. Brandon, do you have any uh, insight into that? Uh, I can't say for sure. I mean, it's a patchwork. Not all the states are the same. Okay. It seems like there's some worry that this is going to have an impact on the number of legal abortions performed in other states. Was that something that was talked about at the state house, Brandon? Well, I mean, the issue of the the disposal the disposal issue was brought up in part because of a recent story that happened where a St. Louis, Missouri, obviously St. Louis uh, abortion facility had shipped as part of a medical waste shipment to a a facility um, to a disposal facility here in Indianapolis. So they had shipped um, uh, aborted remains, aborted fetal remains, to Indiana, and they were disposed of here in Indiana as medical waste. Uh, now, the company in, in was fine because they didn't have a, a, a permit for that. Um, but they weren't doing anything more illegal than not having the proper permit. And so this, and so there was a story about this, and lawmakers kind of responded saying, hey, I can't believe this isn't illegal. Here's this bill. So, Kurt, I want to ask you, uh-huh. just, there's a lot of, it seems like their gender sort of comes up in this issue sometimes. I think when you look at the people who have sort of been leading this charge in Indiana, mm-hmm. you're one of the leaders, mm-hmm. Mike Pence is one of the leaders. Um, it, 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 sometimes, you know, there's a criticism that, well, we have a lot of men who are leading this charge, right. and this is an issue about women's rights. And so I guess I would ask sort of both of you, because we have a mm-hmm. man, you, Kurt, and uh-huh. Abby, a woman, on the panel. I mean, how do you respond to that? Well, we've had for years at IFI a pro-life lobbyist who's a woman. Our primary point person in the legislature is Crystal Lamott, mm-hmm. and she couldn't be here today. So I'm, I'm happy to, to come before her, um, our lead lobbyist on many issues, but including pro-life uh, with Sue Swayze, who's now the lead lobbyist for Indiana Right to Life. So we've generally tried to have both the male and female perspective. Of course, it's a family issue and it's a human issue, so I think men get to speak into it, but we have a different role in a different place, and we've tried to respect that by having women be our lead lobbyists on, on this issue and, and a few others. Okay. 
Abby? Yeah, and our perspective, I mean, we clearly feel feel like a lot of what's happening in our state around reproductive and sexual health is um, not giving women and families the the most information they can have to make decisions, and this is a part of it. So we do feel like it's a women's health issue when you put it in context with, with, um, you know, instead of using money to increase access to for women and families who may be experiencing an unplanned pregnancy we've put money into a crisis pregnancy centers instead of medical centers or medical facilities that can provide prenatal care and options counseling and all of those things um you know the burden is on is on the women around a lot of this um work and so we clearly we feel like it it does um Really and focus I, on women. I can understand why people have that view. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, it's a common question we get, and I, mm-hmm. I understand that. So, Abby, from from your perspective, you know, what kind of public or what what can be done about this? I mean, is it a matter of having more women in elected office? Um, more, you know, I mean, the voters get to go to the yeah. the voting booth, yeah. and you know, the legislature yeah. that we have and the governor that we have were voted in by the citizens of the state of Indiana. Absolutely. So I think it's probably a number of different things. I think a lot of it is, um, yes, vote, um, that of course, but um, also then having a, having more women um, in the legislature, having more um, different political views and let's kind of balance things out a little in, in Indiana, um, having more support um, state, local, um, around um, other programs that are supportive of women's health. So not bringing everything to this particular issue, but looking at um, other things like um, access to contraception, access to um, health care. You know, a lot of people, women and families in Indiana don't have a lot of access to reproductive health care or health care in general. Mm-hmm. So increasing that access. Um, so, yeah, I think they're working together, working across mm-hmm. um, political views, um, finding common ground and ways that we can help improve women's health. If I could add just one little footnote here, the author of the Senate bill, uh, state senator from Fort Wayne is Liz Brown, a woman and a very articulate uh, pro-life attorney from the Fort Wayne area. So just so your listeners would would be aware of that fact. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Brandon, from the standpoint of, you know, how this debate uh, went along. I mean, well, first of all, can you give us some background on how many women there are in the Indiana General Assembly? I was just looking this up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I asked you, Brandon. Uh, go, go ahead. I know yeah. there's 150 overall. That I do know. <laughs> um, I don't have the Senate off the top of my head. Uh, I believe there's about 21 in the House out of I, I okay. think 30 is a ballpark figure, and I'm embarrassed I don't know so be around, precisely. Around 20%. Yeah. Around 20%. Yeah, so, total. Yeah, something like that. Um, so was there a consensus, would you say, among the the women who are in the legislature about these bills? There was a lot more support on the Senate side from female lawmakers, Republican female, no, Democrat, uh, no Democratic lawmakers that I'm aware of. Um, voted for this bill, certainly not in the Senate. Uh, as I look over the House roll call, I don't see any jumping off the page at me. Um, but in the no, House... No Democrats uh, voted for the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the House, there there were, uh, on the final vote on the bill, which, like I said, dealt with both of the, 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 the two major bills combined into one. Um, of the roughly 21 women that I could count here, uh, four voted for the bill. The other 17 did not, including several Republicans, um, some of whom have carried um, abortion bills in the past. So uh, off the top of my head, Holly Sullivan, um, who's from southwest Indiana, uh, Sharon Nagel uh, authored one of those, the, the abortion bill I mentioned earlier that dealt with the, the facilities, the abortion clinics. Um, she actually carried that in the House a couple of years ago. But they got up and said, this, this goes too far. Again, some of the complaints were about the process. Yeah, of it, the concurrence. But some of them also had a fundamental concern with the bill, the, the, the sex selection or the selecting, selective abortion language of the bill, and they said this goes too far. This is poorly written, things like that. So the, it, it was a stronger show of support from Republican women on an abortion bill than I think we've ever really seen. 
And Brandon, could you refresh my memory? This is Kurt. What the yeah. final votes were in each chamber? I should know that, but uh, uh, yeah, I was looking it up. The the final concurrence in the House, so that was the final vote on the the, the full bill, was sixty yeas, forty nays, and I can pull up the Senate here. And that's probably ten less than you would get on just a pure pro life vote, which yeah, might that be, sounds about right. Might and be then, the number of, um, of people yeah, upset. Yeah, because the, not just Republican women voted against it. There were a couple mm-hmm. Republicans. Some who normally vote against abortion bills, some more moderate Republicans who vote against abortion bills, and then a couple of, of sort of different votes. And then uh, the bill got... Um, In the Senate, you've got 50 senators. Yeah, it looks it's 37-13. Yeah, so 64%, there. 60%. Indiana would generally be about 70% pro-life as a as a idea, not particulars. When you get down to the particulars, we're probably split 50-50 on mm-hmm. what I would really call a pro-life versus a pro-choice uh, citizen. And that's what many of the, the again, I, I focus mainly on the, rep, the female Republican lawmakers in the House because of those who spoke against the bill, most of them were the, the female Republicans. But they said this is not, in their minds, a pro-life issue or not because they say they are, they've always been pro-life, they will mm-hmm. always be pro-life, that this was about the, the way the bill was written, the, the specific language of it, and that they felt it went too far. Okay. So thanks a lot, Brandon. Uh, we have a call that sort of goes into this. And, Kurt, I know it's directed to That's you. That's fair. That's Says, fair. We're in Bloomington. You know, That's quite, okay. Right. <laughs> Question from the caller, is pro-life just anti-abortion? No. Pro-life is pro-life. Um, the Life Centers are a beautiful testament to that of people that surround folks in this tough time, emotional moment when they're struggling to know they're, they weren't prepared, they weren't ready, they don't feel like they're going to be the mom or, or dad that they want to be. And uh, so uh, the pro-life community is, is very loving. We're often criticized for not caring about kids after they're born. That's not true. And we could kind of have another show and detail some of that. We care about schools and we care about um, public health and we care about uh, kids learning how to read. Um, you know, the joke, it's not the, the quip, the, the, the sardonic humor about kids reading is you can look in the third grade and see how many kids are reading and you can design your prisons in the future because if you you know you go up to grade three you learn to read and then after that you read to learn and if you're not learning you're not going to do well and so we've been very involved in prison reform and helped champion model legislation in indiana that's given um, our uh, uh, inmates more chances at at recovery and i think that's a pro-life uh, second chance kind of kind of things but it's, an, it's a difficult issue, and I understand people's emotions get up. I would like to just say, and I know I've been kind of hogging the time here. Abby should be uh, shutting off my mic. But I think the arc is America's becoming more pro-life. I'm not saying that because I'm pro-life. I'm not saying that because I'm conservative. We're losing ground on a lot of issues I care about. Um, but I think the public is more and more uncomfortable with, with what's happening and we're one or two justices away from returning to our historic uh, balance of being a pro-life country. And I think the work in the legislature, the bill we're talking about, reflect that. Okay. Let me give our phone number again real quickly, 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. Abby, did you want to respond? I just think the piece that often gets left out of this whole picture of helping uh, you know, Indiana families be healthy and, and grow is is the piece about prevention. So we react and we react and we react. But a key part of helping families be healthy is helping them have access to the things they need to decide when they want to have a family. Now we could say, you know, perhaps there are people that say ideally all families are, you know, abstinence until marriage, they're married, they have kids, that's just the way things should go. And for your family, if that is your beliefs, then absolutely we respect that. Absolutely. But that's not going to be the way it goes for everyone, right? Um, it's not going to be the way it goes. And so you should absolutely talk in your family about what your family's beliefs are. But we should make sure as a community that we're supporting everyone with the tools that they need to delay to um, prevent um, pregnancy, whether they're sexually active or not, um, so that we are ahead of the game and not reacting and not um, so focused on leaving out the prevention piece. I'd love to learn more about that. So. Yeah. We'll have coffee. We'll have coffee, and I'd love to learn more about your organization and and the work you do. How will this impact the women you work with, Abby, or or will it? 
I mean, I think the part that that impacts our work in general is is mainly the provider piece, is when you start having legislation that really gets involved with a provider-patient relationship, whatever the topic is, um, that makes us very nervous because we want that to be a safe place. We want um, women and families to seek health care. We want them to have a medical home. We want them to be connected to their provider. And so anything that that takes away pieces where we're saying a woman would have to go into their, whatever the issue is, a woman would have to go into a provider and lie to, to be able to choose what it is she wants to choose, whether it's this issue or others. That is where we are really concerned. Now, Abby, I want to also pursue the, the angle about Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood is a target a lot of times of um, pro-life movement. And mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood, I think its supporters would say, is a place where women have the most opportunity to get access to health care. So you were, you were talking about you know access to, to education, access mm-hmm. to health care, access to, I guess, family planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, how does Planned Parenthood sort of fit into this overall discussion for you? I think Planned Parenthood is another, um, another health care provider that women and families access in Indiana. And so they have a role in the health care system for providing um, family planning. Um, the federally qualified health centers have a role. Um, publicly funded family planning agencies have a role. So they're a piece in the healthcare network that that people need to have access to in the state. Okay. And Planned Parenthood has said they're going to fight to strike this down. Do you do you know on what grounds, Brandon? Uh, I do not know specifically, though I could guess. They'll throw um, everything at the wall, but it'll be a. Basically, it's it goes against the tenets of Roe v. Wade. It erodes right. a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Affirmed by Casey in '92. Casey's probably the case that's most. Okay, we have we have a phone call from Pat from Bloomington. Pat, go right ahead. Hi, um, I'm uh, Pat, and I'm a mother of three and grandmother of a brand new five-month-old. <laughs> and I'm really, I just wanted to let you know, I'm really embarrassed by this legislation. It seems so draconian. It doesn't seem fair to the mother, and uh, I am pro-life, and I am for a woman's right to choose as well. So um, I don't think anyone is is really um, against life. Uh, love to see those new grandbabies come along, but I just feel like this is putting such a, an undue burden on the mothers. So that's my comment. Thank you very much. All right. Kurt, any reaction? Well, it's a common um, reaction of, of people of goodwill, and I... Um, heard that in Pat's voice. I, I, I think that's true of her. But I also think that when we look back 20 years, 30 years from now, and we have a lot more Down syndrome citizens uh, in our state loving life, enjoying life, giving amazing affection in return to their family, uh, that we'll, we'll be glad this, uh, this uh, law goes into effect on July 1. Seems like uh, we have a, a caller from the phone, and Kurt again to you. Does the, does the Indiana Does the Indiana Family Institute support capital punishment? Um, we don't have a position. Uh, that's a question uh, that you can get differences on. I'm, I think it's biblical, so I can see it in in theory. I'm not a big proponent of it, but probably the fair answer is to say yes. But that's again after. Uh, 20 years of court cases. And uh, so for me, the requisite is, is the court system that reaches that final conclusion and says the state can exercise its authority to take life. A rare thing. War and capital punishment, self-defense is the other one for an individual. Um, you got to have got to have an impeccable court system for that to, to happen. But we're We're not big advocates of that. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters, many of whom work with us, are totally opposed to capital punishment. What will be happening between now and the end of June to get ready for this to take effect on July 1? Um, I would assume a judge will issue a a preliminary restraining order. It's been the common um, thing, so it will not Hmm. go into effect. But um, um, my guess would be the health department, which actually regulates abortion more than, say, family services or other agencies within our government because it is a medical setting. The health department would probably begin to work with the medical association and other provider networks to say, here are the new requirements, part of their continuing education if they're in that field of practice. They begin to learn about these new requirements. And that's fairly common in other areas of, of our state after the legislature works. There's a, a 
you know, that's part of the continuing education process. Brandon, what do you think uh, might be next in this arena in the state house? Do you hear any anything else that might be coming up? Uh, nothing yet. I mean, there, there, there are always much more abortion bills proposed than the ones that get passed at the end of session or the ones that we end up talking about. Uh, there was a fetal heartbeat bill um, that said essentially once you can hear the heartbeat, you can't perform the abortion anytime thereafter. Um, things like that always get proposed. A lot of times they don't even get hearings, as was the case with that one. An anesthesia uh, sometimes it bill. takes a few years for them to kind of get proposed year after year, and then eventually they actually get the hearing and they start moving. All right, and I want to give Abby the last word about your uh, you know, your organization and your work and you know what, what you want our listeners to know. Okay, so healthcare about education. About a minute, less than a minute. <laughs> healthcare education and training. We want women, families, individuals, communities to have access to reproductive um, and sexual healthcare that's evidence-based, medically accurate. We want adolescents and families to have access to um, evidence-based prevention education. We want women and families to have a medical home where they're having excellent reproductive health care as a part of that. And we think all that together will make Indiana stronger. Okay. Well, thank you both. Thank you for being here today, Kurt thank Smith you. and Abby Hunt and Brandon, Brandon Smith. Thank you, as always. We appreciate your being here with us today. So for producers Sophia Salaby and engineer Mike Pashkash and for Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.